filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. If we were telling the truth when we sang that, we'll be saying that name everywhere we go. If we were lip syncing, we won't. Holy Spirit, identify right now in our hearts and minds whether we are filled with wonder, with awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. And now, Holy Spirit, may the word of God, which is death, apart from your spirit, become life because your Holy Spirit is among us. We love you, Lord. Amen. Turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Uh, if you want to cheat and use your, uh, your uh, fake electronic Bibles, go ahead and do that. But uh, it, whatever you brought this morning, we're going to go through a lot of scriptures, so make sure you can, uh, uh, you can get to it. Uh, if you're going to be reading along electronically, it's, uh, it'll be from the New American Standard this morning, and obviously it'll, we'll show the text also on the screen um, for the lazy among us. Um, so um, we're in a biblical series about people who encountered Jesus. And so every one of those account encounters have come from the New Testament. And will you say, you know, of course, that's where you find the stories about people encountering Jesus. Um, uh, but what's interesting is, uh, you may not know, but there are a bunch of encounters with Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem. Um, before we get to that in the Old Testament, uh, I want to understand uh, us to understand a defining attribute of the early church. I, I alluded to it in the prayer about the, the mention of his name, the power of his name. Um, you see... They went around in the early church telling everyone about Jesus and then asking them if they wanted to know him. Everywhere they went. They did that when the Colosseum and the lions and the guillotine, all of those things, they did those when those were the risk. That's what the early church was like. There, there was, no one could conceive of the great commission just being an offering that they gave that went halfway around the world to get people saved there. Everyone recognized that personal evangelism, the Great Commission, was the deep joy and responsibility of every single person who really knew Christ. They could not have conceived of a day like today where a person can say, I follow Christ and not go around talking about the name all the time. They never could have conceived of a day like that. But let me give you a, a sobering statistic. By the way, 
uh, at the end. At some point, you need to get notes, so you might as well get up and get it now. Um, by the way, now what I've, ha- I've had the ushers put $5 bills on the, on the backs of the ones now. So now the ones who don't want the notes, um, p- please get them. The reason why is today, even if you don't take any notes at the end, um, there's, we're going to do a little work together in writing as a, as a congregational response, and you'll need that. Um, here's your first blank. A sobering statistic about today. On average, here's your blanks, only one in 100 adult American believers will ever lead another adult to Christ. There's a lot of evangelicals in a lot of worldviews in our country right now, but it's not us. On average, so this comes, the, comes from the work of the Barna Group, Imagine that. Um, you, you realize if you, want, if you want a religion to last for only a half a generation, that's the plan. If you want a religion to be gone from your society, that's the plan. Um, how could this be? And the answer is really complex. Um, but a part of it is because The church has developed a misunderstanding about what evangelism is, what biblical evangelism really is. Um, So this morning we're going to use Old Testament stories to tell us what New Testament evangelism should look like. Now don't be surprised, do you know when the apostles said, okay, here comes New Covenant evangelism, do you know what Bible they were preaching from? Oh, the only Bible they had, the Hebrew Scriptures. Did you know the entire church started its first 30 or 40 years preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ only using the Old Testament? Do you realize we're almost the opposite now? And is there any reason why our New Testament theology is so lousy? Because we're not preaching what the apostles preached. So let's look at four incredible salvation precepts that flow out of the Old Testament that show us how we can save his world with him. Uh, Salvation precept number one, here you go. There's only one Savior. Now, I'm sure it doesn't surprise you that in a church like ours with a high view of Scripture and historical theology, orthodox historical Christian theology, it doesn't surprise you that we start there. Christ alone can save, but you know what? Many believers don't actually know what that means. It's, it's the simplest thing, and yet we are clueless about it. Ironically, in an attempt to affirm the exclusivity of Christ, many of us have lost our understanding of how God saves the world. And to make this point clear, I'm just going to start with a question that stops a lot of Christians in their tracks. Show the question up here. Did people get saved in the Old Testament? whole bunch of them. Jesus is going to sit on King David's throne. I suspect he was saved. Okay? Who saved people in the Old Testament? Now, many believers think that before Christ came, God must have had some kind of different method, right? And in fact, this is, there's actually a theology, an actual full-blown theology called dispensationalism 
that says that the way he used to save had to do with being Jewish and following the law and sacrificing in the temple. And you know what? It's a really, really profoundly worked out biblical theology, and it's absolutely wrong. Okay, so this is really important. Here's the key concept. Write it in. Jesus was the Savior of the world before the world even existed. You want the text? Incredible message from the book of Revelation. Jesus was slain from before the foundations of the earth. Long before the Old Testament was even written. So, the scripture teaches that Christ was slain then and before anyone is this amazing. Now, this is grace. Christ was slain in the heart of the Father and in his will, the Son's will, before anyone needed saving. That's how great a Savior he is. So, the idea that Jesus was the Savior in the Old Testament flows right out of Scripture, and we're going to look at some of those. So, you're in Judges chapter 6. Salvation story number one. These are, these are fun, okay? Um, start with verse 1. Uh, here, here we are uh, in the Gideon story. I'll, I'll give you, for those who are not from, familiar with Gideon, uh, you'll learn most of it here, but I'll give a little more information on it. But look at verse 1, chapter 6 of Judges. Um, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Verse 6, the end of that paragraph. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Skip a paragraph, verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. His son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord. Now the whining begins. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Verse 14, And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Verse 22, a couple of paragraphs down. Verse 22, Then Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, and he has said, alas, now we'll come back to this in a second, notice who he's talking to, the angel of the Lord, and look what he calls him. Alas, Lord God, that is the word Yahweh. For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's horrified. And the Lord says, look, peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So, Gideon is talking to the angel of the Lord, and he calls him Yahweh. How is that possible? And also notice that, like all the other Hebrews know, that when they see God face-to-face since Moses, they all knew. You see God face-to-face, it's like, you know, it's like putting a hay bale into a blast furnace. It's over, okay? So, amazingly enough, God says, don't fear. Even though you've seen me, you're not going to die Point number one, here's your blank. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is actually well known in classical theology. And point number two, Christ saved Gideon and Israel. Salvation story number two. We pick up 
as the Israelites, this would have been a long time before this, right? They've left Egypt. Now they're, the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness, and they've run out of water. So turn back to the second book of the Bible. Genesis is first, then comes Exodus. Turn to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. Uh, they've run out of water. Um, and uh, this is another one of those sections where, uh, where uh, spiritual leaders know that God's people have never changed through all the ages. Uh, now we're just, we can point fingers at them because they're not us. Um, verse 1, chapter 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test God? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 4, So Moses cried out to the Lord and said, What shall I do with this people? I suspect Pastor Kurt has that underlined in his uh, Bible. (coughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I hear that witness, Pastor. Um, A little more and they will stone me. Verse 5, then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take your hand and your staff which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Point number one, write it in. God's people were saved by the water that came from the rock. Okay, so notice the rock saved Israel, but it turns out this rock was way more than just a regular old rock. In fact, the Apostle Paul announces this astonishing truth. Now, by the way, when you hear something this absurd as an interpretation of Scripture, the only time you can really believe it is when Scripture is interpreting itself. You ready? The Apostle Paul is going to interpret this passage for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at it. For I do not want you to be aware, is it up here? Yeah. Uh, uh, to unaware, brethren, that our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the Red Sea, right? So that's, the, that's, that's back to this time, the story we're looking at. And all were baptized into the, Moses with the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. That was the manna that God provided, right? Notice, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And you're ready for the interpretation? And the rock was Christ. I don't get it. Do you? I mean, can you, I mean, wouldn't you love to see video of this thing following them around, waiting for them to get mad at the preacher and for the preacher to say, oh Lord, they're going to kill me. And for the Lord to say, no problem, just hit that rock. I've been following you. And so look at the point number two, the rock that saved Israel was Christ. There's only one savior, folks. Salvation story number three. We pick up during the Babylonian exile. So what's happened in the history of Israel, it goes into the kingship. Uh, once it gets uh, to, the sons, uh, to, to the sons of Solomon, it splits to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has gone, gotten the ten tribes there have been basically scattered into Assyria. Now we're coming down with Judah and Benjamin along with them. 
Um, they have become, God says, there's no more remedy for you. And so now they have been exiled into Babylon uh, with Nebuchadnezzar as the king there. Okay, so that's the, that's the, the setup. Um, and he builds this gigantic statue, um, commands everybody to worship. And you know, there are three Hebrew children that say, no, we won't bow down. And so Nebuchadnezzar has had the furnace heated with seven times more fuel than usual. And they've been thrown into the fire. Look at Daniel with me. So uh, you're in Exodus, turn way, in the middle you'll find the Psalms. Turn to the right three or four books and you'll start into the major prophets that start with Isaiah, Jeremiah. Uh, And the last of the major prophets is Daniel. When you get over to the ones you can't spell and don't remember, uh, you're lost in the minor prophets. Turn back to the left and you'll bump bump into Daniel. All right, Daniel chapter 3. Verse 24, here we are there in the, in the fiery furnace, right? Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He responded and said to the high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered the king and said, certainly, O king. He answered and said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And by the way, the next statement is the only way a polytheist could interpret this fourth man. Look at this. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Pretty close. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. You servants of the Most High God, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the high, uh, king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that, listen to this, when God, when Jesus delivers, look at how perfect the deliverance is. Look at this. The fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had even the smell of fire come upon them. What a great Savior. Look at this. Point number one, the fourth person in the fiery furnace was the Son of God, Jesus, pre-incarnate. And point number two, Christ Save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Salvation story number four. We go now back 4,000 years, long before any of these stories, 2,000 years before Christ to the time of Abraham. So they're married but can't have children. And so as is not common in that day, the Sarah had uh, maid servants, and she, she came up with a plan. She said, here's the scoop, Abraham. We must have not been able to understand God's promise or something. And so take my handmaiden. She'll bear a child for us. Actually, by the law that day, there was nothing against the law. And remember, this is 550 years before Moses. This is before the Mosaic law. So in faithlessness because Abraham and Sarah had already been told by God himself they would have the son, as you probably know. Hagar is given to him, bears a a child named uh, Ishmael. Um, And uh, so so this is where we come in this story. And now look at chapter 21 of Genesis. Um, Pastor uh, Pastor has told me before that when he, Pastor Kurt has told me that when he came to, uh, to know the Lord, he thought Genesis was the name of a rock band. Um, so for those of you who think Genesis is an old rock band, uh, it's the first book in the Bible. Chapter 21, look at this, verse 14. We're picking up the story here, right? Because let me tell you what's happened. Um, now God comes through with his promise, as he always does. 
And now they have Isaac, a real son. They're way too old to have this baby, but they have it, just like God promised. And so now they don't need Hagar and they don't need Ishmael anymore. Okay, in fact, Hagar is now getting, uh, Sarah is now getting back at Hagar because Hagar was pretty cocky about having that baby when Sarah couldn't have a baby. So there's bad blood, and now Sarah's going to show her what's what. Look at verse uh, 14 of chapter 21. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy, that's Ishmael, and sent her away, and she departed, look at this, and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she left the boy under the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bowshot away, and she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And God heard the lad crying, and (laughs) the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened his eyes, her eyes, she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness, and became an archer. Point number one, here it is. The angel of the Lord brought the living water. <laughs> Point number two, I bet you know what's in the blank. Christ saved Hagar and Ishmael all the way back in Genesis. Are we picking up on a pattern? The gospel, when Jesus said, think about this, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he wasn't making a new announcement. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, wow, there's one Savior and he's the Christ. That wasn't a new announcement. That was, not, that was not fresh news. That was news older than the earth. That there's one Savior and it's always been Jesus. So, in Scripture, it repeatedly affirms that everyone in every generation and every place who has ever been saved has been saved through Christ. So the answer to the puzzling question is not puzzling. Who saved people in the Old Testament crowd? That's right, the only Savior. Jesus didn't start saving after the crucifixion. He's always been the one Savior. Apart from Christ, there has never been salvation. Salvation precept number two. Jesus has never saved anyone theologically. Now hang with me. I know I'm preaching to some ordained elders and uh, ordained deacons and even some people who have masters of divinity Uh, fill in the second blank. He has never saved anyone theologically. He always saves everyone personally. Theologically, this is incredibly important. (laughs) You ready? Okay, Christian doctrine and apologetics are incredibly important. In fact, in a day like today, with the deterioration of the whole entire construct of truth, the emergence of relativism, it has never been more important to be able to have an account, to make an account for the hope that lies within us, okay? So don't, there's, there's ditches on both sides, right? Don't fall in either ditch. So notice, with this in mind, think about the biblical stories we just read. When people 
needed saving. Jesus didn't send a precept or a worldview. He doesn't send an apologetic or a doctrine. No, when Jesus needs saving, he sends himself. Do you remember the day? I'm still confused about a bunch of this stuff. You know, if you read the whole book of Judges, you ought to be confused. I mean, it's like scary. I mean, not even Hollywood is that courageous to write that kind of stuff. And some of their, you know what? I still have a whole bunch of stuff that is not figured out. But you know what? He came to me personally. Uh, How much do you think the uh, guy on the cross next to Jesus knew about the four spiritual laws? Jesus saved him personally. The only Savior, even with no theology in the guy's mind. So, uh, the other religions of the world, you know what it is? It's the belief system. It's following in the way. It's following the leader. It's doing the sacraments correctly. It's, it's getting the rules down. It, you, I don't know if you've ever read the Quran in, in uh, English, but if you've read the Quran in English, it's hard to find a page that doesn't have the word hell on it. If you don't follow Allah's law, you're going to hell. Over and over and over. It's always about the law and being good. Notice, it wasn't a belief system that saved Israel or Gideon or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All the rest of the world, all the rest of the religions, it's you follow this way. Even secular humanism now. You do these things and you're good. If you don't, you're the Antichrist. Just watch the news. So, Every last person who will ever be saved and has ever been saved was saved personally by Jesus himself. Okay, so um, salvation precept number three, here's where it starts getting really puzzling, right? The only Savior, here's your blank, the only Savior wants to use us to help him save his world. Now go figure that. I think Pastor Kurt and I have been, um, we might be... um, competing for who can sound more heretical um, on this point. But we've been making the point, haven't we? It's a bad plan. It's the worst plan ever. The church is the plan. It's a horrible plan. Jesus has the ugliest bride in history. Okay, so notice, notice this. His plan is to use us to save the world. It makes no sense at all. So, you heard what Thomas said earlier. Look at it on the, on the screen. I am the way. It's his exclusive claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus announces that he's the only way, right? And then you know what happens in this context? A few verses later, look at verse 12. Look at this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do... He shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. Are you kidding me? He left us? He left Peter? Amazing concept number one, write it in. Jesus is the only way, (laughs) and yet we will do greater things. Concept number two. The reason we will do greater things is because he's going away. In fact, in another of the synoptics, 
One of the synoptics, he said, it's better for me to go away. How could this be? And here's the stunning truth that you may have heard us teach before. Okay? Having millions of spirit-filled believers being Jesus all around the world is better than Jesus being physically here constrained as one person on the planet. But here's the problem. This only works if those whom he has saved are diligently helping him to save his world. He's physically gone. He has come by his spirit, and he can be all over the world. But think back to the story of Hagar and Ishmael. This is really staggering to me. What did the people of faith do to Hagar? When Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to bear a child, it meant that Hagar, think about this, Hagar could never marry anyone else again because she was considered the wife of Abraham, even though Abraham wasn't really being a husband to her. She was just a servant. She was just there to bring the progeny. No other purpose. So Abraham and Sarah completely ruined Hagar's life. She could never have another husband, and then to top it off, when they, when they didn't need her son or her anymore, you know what they did? They simply cast her out into the wilderness to die. So think about this. Why did Jesus have to show up in pre-incarnate form in the wilderness to save Hagar and Ishmael? It's because the people of God didn't care about them. They had ruined their lives and they didn't care. Just let that sink in for a minute, people of God. Let me ask you a question. Today, when Jesus makes his plan to save the lost people around you, does he have to show up as the angel of the Lord? Or can he show up as you? Listen, does he have to pull off spectacular miracles because he can't find someone who will be Jesus in the flesh, filled with his spirit all over the world? Let me ask you. What are you doing to help Jesus save his world? Where you live, where you work, where you go. And what are you doing to seek out those in need? Those who don't look like you, don't talk like you, those who don't have the incredible blessings that you have. Do you by your actions show the lost people around you that you actually care? Let me ask you, who are the Hagars around us? And how is Jesus going to save them and through whom? Salvation precept number four. The only Savior is at work in a lot more places than we could ever imagine. Now, we don't know why, but through all of history, God has always carried out his plans by making a covenant with people. The Adamic covenant with Adam. The Noahic covenant with Noah. The Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic covenant. The new covenant. He has always saved his world through covenants with people. The reason it's so hard to understand why this is God's plan is because it always leads to a big complication. You ready for this? You know, you ready for the big complication? When God takes a special people and says, I'm going to have a covenant with you. You know what almost always happens? They start thinking, I must be special. 
We see it right now in the midst of a nation where every single person who's breathing is made in the image of God. And the people who are the Abrahams and the Sarahs among us who should be walking in faith and who should care a lot about the Hagar and Ishmaels don't care about them. So this is a, but, but this is a, you'll be, you'll be pleased. This is, this point number four is really remarkable. And in fact, it's, um, it brings joy, I hope, to all of us. Notice, being chosen, this is really important. Maybe in uh, some of our discipleship or, or some point we'll be able to spend a, a day on this. Being chosen, most people, uh, most American evangelicals think being chosen means I got saved. Jesus chose and got me saved. No, being chosen has always been about responsibility. Being chosen has always been about responsibility, not privilege. Being chosen is always about responsibility, not privilege. In fact, turn back, uh, now you're in the 21st chapter of Genesis, turn back to the 12th chapter. Here's where the covenant is launched with Abraham. This is the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? And look at uh, verse 1 as God is giving Abraham this amazing covenant. And he says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, excuse me, he hasn't had the name change yet, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make, here comes the promise, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Here's the promise, write it in. The great promise to Abraham, I will bless you. This is great. He's in covenant. But you know what? The verse doesn't end there. The chapter doesn't end there. The concept doesn't end there. The covenant, uh, the covenant does not end there. Look at this. Look at the end of verse 2. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We've heard the great promise I'll bless you. Here's the great purpose to use him to bless the whole world. But unfortunately, as is often true with God's people, now that he'd received the blessing of God's great promise, Isaac, he forgot the great purpose. Out with Hagar and Ishmael and those who are not us, chosen. So now, back to Genesis chapter 20. I told you, this is one of those mornings where if you brought... If you actually brought a physical Bible, you'll need uh, carpal tunnel syndrome surgery after this morning. Uh, There's enough back and forth together. So look at this. Um, The beginning of Genesis, um, this is not a highlight of uh, Abraham's life. Um, The beginning of chapter 20. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, settled between Kadesh and Shur, and there he, he sojourned or journeyed in Gerar. This is actually an ancient term for Egypt. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, the king of Gerar, took, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near here, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not say of himself, she is my sister? And she of herself, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And what a remarkable response from a God of grace. Look at this. Then God said to him, in the dream, yes, 
I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. Notice, a reminder, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So don't act all holy, Abimelech. It was me that you kept you out of the wrong bed. By the way, anybody that ever wants to stand before God and say, I actually did stuff, instead of saying, don't look at me, look at him. This is a great message, isn't it? I kept you from sinning against, uh, against me. Look at this. Uh, what an amazing, amazing story. Okay, so um, the, 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 he abandons his wife, right, to the harem of the king of Egypt. Um, hardly the man of faith, right? But I want to make sure we don't miss something. This entire interaction came from a crucial misunderstanding that Abraham was completely blind about God's plan for Gerar. Look now at verse 10. This is remarkable to me. Verse 10. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing to me? And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Write it in. Here's his gigantic, here's his great error. He massively underestimated the scope and extent of God's salvation plan. Listen to Abraham's words again as he explained uh, why he lied to Abimelech. Look at these words. Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place. Now think back to the covenant. The reason God blessed Abraham was so that he could bring the blessing of faith in God to the whole world. That was the main point of the covenant, not the blessing, but saving the world. God's always been a missionary God. So notice this. Now, I have to always preface this when I do this. I'm not rewriting scripture, okay? I'm just going to say what the verses should say, okay? So here we go. It's on the screen. It should go like this. This should be the start of this chapter. Now, Abraham journeyed there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he journeyed to Gerar, and Abraham thought to himself, this is great. God has given me a chance to bless the people of Gerar. I wonder what God is already doing here. I wonder how God's grace is already at work in this country. I wonder how he's been preparing the hearts of these people to respond to the message of faith. That should be the believer's attitude. But here's Abraham's mistake. He obviously thought, well, there couldn't be any faith in Gerar of all places. So let me confess about uh, the first decade of my career at the University of Arizona. Not exactly an evangelical school. Uh, I would come home and just say, Dana, this place is so godless. I am so frustrated. I just, I just, you know, this is just, this place just is, and, and Dana would talk me off the cliff as a good wife of all these years has done many times. Um, and uh, something happened to me 20 years ago in this chapter. God changed my life. I realized I was going to work saying, surely there is no fear of God in this place. Let me ask you. In your family, wherever you are, are you going anywhere saying, surely there is no fear of God in this place? And God changed me completely. And you, it is amazing. It is amazing to be <laughs> walking with someone who was an atheist who now I'm talking, reading C.S. Lewis with, even though he's out of the state and we're just doing it by phone now. It's amazing what can happen. 
The story of Gerar changed my life. Listen, our job in places of darkness is to have an attitude of expectancy, to assume that God is working on people's hearts even before we show up. This is why the prospect of witnessing for Jesus should be joy to us. You know, think of what the setting that they lived in in the early church, but they just expected that everybody they talked to about Jesus was already being prepared to be saved because they knew they were no different than this person before they came to Jesus. God had to do it. But if we don't believe that Jesus is going before us to save his world, then we'll be filled with fear when we're telling others about him. Let me say one more thing. Pastor Kurt has been really emphasizing in, our, in the discipleship we're hoping to do uh, in the future that we want to give tools to everybody so you know how to tell your story and you know how to give an apologetic, uh, though not an apology, an apologetic, uh, the, the account of, of, of the hope that uh, lies within you. But this is really important. You, you can be Robbie Zacharias or C.S. Lewis. You can be the smartest apologist on the planet And no one will ever be convinced by our argument. Only the spirit going before us and a heart of expectancy on a person going in praying and saying, okay, Lord, this person's smarter than me. I don't have all the answers. And maybe they're going to ask about that. But you're preparing their hearts. My goodness, church. Jesus is ready to save a whole city of more, four million people. And a lot of us have already given up on them. So, how does Abraham's story apply to us? There's a great risk that we've already given up on lots of people. How sad that our God, who is mighty to save, is preparing the hearts of people all around us, but we have this tendency to think, nah, couldn't be. But the Word teaches that we're surrounded by people whom God is working on. Listen, some of them, like Abimelech, may be having dreams. Did you know that if the missiologists are correct, somewhere between five and 10,000 Muslims a day in the Middle East are having dreams about Jesus, and some of them are called to preach before they ever find a Christian or a Bible. We don't have any idea what God is doing in the lives of everyone around us, but I'll guarantee you this, he is setting up the perfect plan to save them. It doesn't mean they can't say no, but we're part of the plan. So here's the key. He's working in their bad days. He's working in their good days. He's working in the circumstances of their life. And it's our job to lift up our heads, assume that he's mighty to save. And in every home, every business, every school, every neighborhood, we go expecting him to save. Here's your last blank. The main point of Genesis 20, if God was working in Gerar then God is working everywhere. How do you get more, how do you get worse than Egypt? And God was already there. So, we need to reject the attitude that would lead us to assume there is no fear of God in this place. The story of Gerar teaches that everyone who's still breathing has God working to save them in their lives. So this morning... Will you join him in his great plan? Will you take on the burden for the lost people who surround you? Will you make a commitment of hopefulness that won't be quenched by darkness or even failure of your witness? There's one Savior, it's not us. We never fail in a witness. 
We speak the name of Jesus just like the early Christians do. And they got beheaded. We just get looked at strangely. Pastor Josiah, come on up. So Abraham's story isn't just 4,000 years old. We're living, folks, in Gerar today. America has become Gerar, hasn't it? But even though Gerar looks like a place that's devoid of the fear of God, the great news is God is at work even in this nation, even in this community, even in your neighborhood. The Savior's all around us, setting the circumstances of life up so people are being prepared to respond to his grace. No matter, you know what? This is amazing. No matter how deep the darkness, in the Psalms, there's this incredible name of God, Yahweh Shema. You ready for this? What King David probably, but the psalmist teaches, he says, even if I descend into Hades, Itself, I am Yahweh Shamar. I Shema, I am even there. There is no neighborhood you're in, no business you're in, no partner you have. There's no one who is outside of the working grace and presence of God. The question is: Are God's people sitting around making assumptions about the hopelessness of our Gerar? Or are we optimistic about the great salvation plan that God has? Are we joining him in helping him save his world? In short, let me ask you, are we being the hands of Jesus and the words of Jesus? It takes both. So it's time for us to respond. Uh, Ushers, if there's somebody who doesn't have this, look at the bottom of this, even if you haven't been taking notes. Um, As the the team plays for a a few minutes, I've left, left time for us to do two things. I want you to write down two things. Um, first, the things that are going to change in your life, the things you, by the Holy Spirit's power and transformation, are going to change about you in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your school, and wherever you go, to be Jesus and to bring Jesus and to speak Jesus to those around you. What are you going to change? Put down horrifying things in number one. What are you going to do to bring and be Jesus? And second, write down the names of those you know who need Jesus or you think they need Jesus. This is not a judgment. It's just simply, do you think there are people that you're around and working and neighbors and all of these who need Jesus? Be specific about who you're going to pray for and take this with you and fold it and put it in your Bible or your devotional so you'll see the names and you'll pray for the names. So as we close, while the team sings, Let's remain seated and spend a few minutes writing down these things. And then uh, in a few minutes as we get mature in what we've uh, written, we're going to stand together and sing together and announce our mighty Savior.